This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's principal second violin and artistic administrator Merwin Sue, the TSO's marketing director Felicia Canny, and two special guests have also joined us today, David Sagers, who is artistic director of the Toledo School for the Arts, and Hinda Markowitz, who is director of the Ruth Fagerman Markowitz Holocaust Resource Center of Greater Toledo. Welcome to all of you, especially to our two guests. Thank, Thank you for you. joining Thanks. us today. Now, we're going to talk about something that is really, a, this is sort of a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience for people to, to have, especially here in Toledo. This is the opera Brundebar, which is a Holocaust-era children's opera that is an opera meant to be performed by children. And it's being presented by the Toledo Symphony in collaboration with Toledo School for the Arts. I want to mention the concert is happening in February. It's February 20th. That's a Thursday evening at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle. Uh, the showing for the general public is at 7 o'clock p.m., although there are some young people's concerts happening earlier in the day. This is presented in commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, more information at ToledoSymphony.com. You can also call up the box office if you want to get your tickets. That's 419-246-8000. Hinda, let's start with you because you were the person really responsible for bringing this production to Toledo. Tell us what Brindabar is and give us a sense of its importance in, in, in this whole story. Okay. Uh, Brindabar was a children's opera. Uh, written in 1938 by Hans Krasa for uh, a children's opera competition and performed twice in secret uh, before the mass transports of the Bohemian and Moravian Jews to Theresien began in 1942. And it was smuggled into the camp and premiered on September 23, 1943. Um, Theresien was a camp ghetto that existed for three and a half years between November 24th, 1941 through May 9th, 1945. It was also a transit camp, a ghetto labor, and a holding pen for Jews uh, from Czechoslovakia, Germany, um, Austria, Netherlands, and Denmark before they were being sent by rail transports to their death at Auschwitz, mm. uh, Birkenau, and Treblinka. Yeah, very, I mean, obviously a very serious subject, but this collaboration and bringing Brindabar to our community, I think, is, is a fantastic accomplishment and, and is raising awareness and helping to keep the awareness of the Holocaust going to the future. I know that's something, uh, Hinda, that you are very much involved in. You've talked about how there aren't that many survivors with Correct. us anymore. Correct. I would say within the next five to ten years, there will no longer be survivors yeah. alive. Um, if they are, they were very, very young or they were hidden. Um, so their stories are different than the older survivors. Um, this opera, I want to you know, also say that the cost of the ticket, half of the money goes for Holocaust education, mm. which is really important that we continue that education, and that Brundabar was just not an opera. It's a piece of history that yeah. needs to be told. Well, and remarkable that it managed to survive mm -hmm. the concentration camps, as it were. And in fact, you're doing sort of a double bill with Brundabar and this other piece, 
called But the Giraffe Correct. by Tony Kushner and uh, illustrated by Maurice Sendak. But it, it tells the story of how Brindabar made it made it out, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. So an interesting combination. Now, David Sagers is here from Toledo School for the Arts, and you were teaming up. You've got singers or students that are performing the piece. Yes, all the... Um Singers for Brundabar and the actors in But the Giraffe are students at the school. These are students from our choral program and also our music theater program. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've been studying the piece already. They're um, working and finishing blocking now. And uh, they'll be... um, Performing in both of the pieces, and and but the giraffe as a companion to Brunabar is a really effective way to bring a focus on uh, the children's experience, um, not only the children who are performing the piece, but also for the children who lived through that experience. Yeah, well, I imagine you know nowadays in 2020 for some young kids to get together and and say, hey, we're going to do this opera, Brindabar. And, and really, on the surface, it's kind of a, a fairy tale opera, a little bit Hansel and Gretel-like. You've got the, the brother and the sister who are, what is it, they decide to sing to make money for their mother? That's right. Yeah, and, and, and they do it in the style of this Brindabar, the title character, which is a, sort of a Czech colloquialism grinder, yeah. for Bumblebee. Bumblebee. That, that's, you know, yeah. the translation of his name. And... and he comes back at them and says, you can't do that. They have sort of a competition. The well, kids bring in animals. That's right. Well, Brundabar is, um, he's an organ grinder in the town. That's it, And yeah. he's got kind of a monopoly on music. So when the kids want to raise money by um, singing in the marketplace, he chases them out. And he gets the authorities to help him do that. Yeah. So kind of in their despair, the children um, are... I know, in a way, kind of magically assisted by these animals, a sparrow, a dog, a and a dog. cat. Yeah. And um, those animals are intermediaries, really, between the two kids, the brother and sister, and all the rest of the kids in town who are brought out to um, help them raise this money through singing. Yeah. Um, now... Are the TSA students who are doing this performance, I'm just curious how connected they are to the actual events surrounding the opera itself. Have have they immersed themselves in the story of the Holocaust and the many stories that were coming out of the Holocaust? Yeah, we've had an opportunity for Hinda to uh, visit the school, and she's um, spent quite a bit of time with the cast and talked about that. And they've studied it also, aside from that. Um, Juliet Quinlan is the director of the show, and she was telling me about um, an assignment that she had for her kids because one of the central parts of the story, but the giraffe, is the decision that this girl has to make between saving her sort of beloved stuffed giraffe toy and the score of this musical, Brundabar, written by her father. She has to struggle with that decision. So one of the assignments that kids had to do at school was decide what items they would bring that would fit the weight requirement that mm. a Jewish child would have been confronted with yeah. as part of their deportation. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be very hard to look at this opera in any other context but from whence it came, right? And even the composer, Hans Kraza, somebody 
who among several very, very talented, fantastic composers who were just by virtue of the fact that they were Jewish, ended up in this concentration camp. Kraza ended up more or less running the artistic events at uh, Theresienstadt, which I want to talk about in a minute, but also somebody who was, you know, shipped off along with most of the people who, who performed this opera, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to their deaths in, in the concentration camps as well. Um, I, I can't imagine presenting, performing, you know, even watching this without feeling the heavy weight, even, you know, 70 years later that we're feeling that we that they felt and that is inherent in the music because the story that we've talked about the the two kids you know singing to raise money being assisted by the magical animals and that sort of thing it's really all a a bit of a an allegory for Mm -hmm. what was happening to them at the time Hinda, do you want to talk a little bit about how the opera itself really reflects the conditions? Well, as you said, it was an allegory of of the situation where Brunderbar is actually Hitler, dressed up to look like Hitler with his mustache and his tyrannical um, composure, and that, you know, the children themselves um, were more or less just there trying to exist and enjoy music and to enjoy life. And that um, also to remember that the opera was done in Czech mm-hmm. and the audience only spoke German. So when they're singing these songs and it is about these happy children supposedly performing the opera, that it's a parody or an allegory of what's taking place in their time and place. And while they were performing, they didn't have to wear their Jewish Mm -hmm. stars, Mm -hmm. which was very interesting. So Mm -hmm. they had normal lives. They were given food. They had beautiful surroundings. um, They could play. They could write. um, You know, this all was a deception by the Nazis to create this model or show camp for the Mm -hmm. world to see. Um, But it Mm -hmm. also reflects that music really is what helps people um, enjoy life, to, you know, continue with their life because they have something to live for in that respect. Um, The opera itself is a symbol of defiance against all odds and some of the lines, I guess, were changed as they went along exactly. in Czech to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, if you are for justice, exactly, you know, you can join me as mm-hmm. well. That sort of thing. A lot of pokes that they were taking at the at their mm-hmm. uh, overlords, as it were, at, at the camp. Exactly. Reason shot or Terezin, however it's referred to, as we know, was sort of a, a cultural center among the, these horrible, horrible concentration mm-hmm. camps. And a show camp, when the Red Cross came in, you know, mm-hmm. the Nazis presented it as their model camp. They even made a movie mm-hmm. about it as mm-hmm. well to try to show the world, you know, that they were doing these things. There's, there is this sort of um, dichotomy, I guess, that exists between what you were talking about, the fact that people were expressing themselves they were moving forward. They were surviving through their art, not just making the art, mm-hmm. p- but performing the art and watching the art and seeing this going on. And that contrasted, of course, with the fact that it, that it was a facade, 
that was Correct. created by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And these kids and the composer, the performers, were shipped off to Auschwitz after 55 performances, performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, of this particular opera. And it just uh, weighs so heavily on the soul to think about that. But then to experience it in person, I imagine, is, is quite a transformative experience. And that's what you're looking for, Hinda, right? We are in terms to, to make an impression on the children that this was what life was like yeah. during that time. And that, you know, I, th- I think important is that to know that Brundabar is a reminder that the evil of anti-Semitism never again should, you know, be allowed to gain a foothold. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit before we got on mic about um, young children being introduced to the horrors of the Holocaust and the history of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. and. This maybe is a, a way to bring children into the conversation by attending this opera and by seeing the story and, and then perhaps being engaged on the level of putting it in context. Do you, in, in your work with the Holocaust Resource Center, um, do you try to reach young generations w- with this story? Not just with this story, but the story of the Holocaust. Right. We do programs during the year. I do a diversity program. I bring in a survivor to speak to 900-plus students um, down at the Valentine, and they, the survivor tells their story. It's a home morning program, um, asking questions after their story. Um, and when the survivor tells their story that they were that, their age as children, it brings it closer to home mm. than just somebody standing up and speaking. Um, yeah. Again, it's a, a cautionary tale. It is a cautionary tale. Yeah. And, and that we need to be cognizant of what went on in Europe, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, because there are so many, so many things that we could draw a connection with to today's day and age. Of course, you know, it pales in comparison with what went on during the Holocaust, right. but but for any number of factors, we could certainly go down that path right. again. I think you also have to keep in mind the deception that the Nazis gave to the world that what were they complaining about? Yeah. Here is this camp. Everything is beautiful. Mm-hmm. They have clothes. They have places to sleep. They have food. And what are you all complaining about? Mm. And people believed it. Yeah. And people just, you know, remember, it wasn't like it is today in terms of media. You know, the Nazis controlled the media, mm-hmm. and they yeah. controlled what would be disseminated. So it was very easy to deceive. You know, these Jews were taken from their respective countries and cities on passenger trains, and they were told to take one suitcase. They were going to be relocated, resettled. They believed them. Until they got to the camps and realized they weren't being resettled. Yeah, yeah, it's just a terrible story. And um, I'm curious, what what was your introduction to this particular piece, to Brindabar itself? Well, I've been very involved in Holocaust education for probably most of my life mm-hmm. in yeah. history. And um, I married uh, someone whose parents were Holocaust survivors. Unfortunately, they're both deceased. Um, It's your mother-in-law. Mother-in-law, who the center is is named after, and my father-in-law, 
Um, my father-in-law was in five concentration camps in a death march. My mother-in-law was in concentration camps, but they were mostly war camps, were not any less terrible. Um, but they both survived, thank goodness. Wow. Mm. Lost wow. their whole families. Yeah. It, it, we have to take like a breath every once in a while while we talk about this subject because it, it is a heavy, heavy subject. You were talking about the media and, and the propaganda being put out by the Nazis. But there's also the factor that, that the whole world was more or less swallowing it hook, line, and sinker because they didn't want to believe the, the, the horrible stories that may have filtered out from time to time. They, did, they didn't want to believe that, right. you know, humanity was capable of, of such a thing. Right. I, I want to interject that, remember, it was Germany. People thought Germany, you know, a very cultured uh, country. Uh, um, the home of Beethoven. Exactly. And and, and Culturally, intellectually. Um, everything that just you know that they could do something like this it yeah. was unfathomable. Well, let's get back to Brindabara and its journey to Toledo. I notice Merwin and Felicia, you you both have been uh, remarkably silent, and and I can imagine you know listening to these to the story and listening to Hinda talk as well. It, it's very difficult to try to hold our own with you, Hinda, because you have such remarkable experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, with your work and, and with your life experience as well. But I wonder if Merwin and Felicia, if you want to chime in a little bit and talk about the production in Toledo and, and its journey to where, it, where it's going to be next month. I think I'll start just by saying that um, Brindabar actually has two different instrumentations. And there was a Prague version, kind of the original conception of it, and then there was a Terezin instrumentation. And then and you think about why those instrumentation choices were made, and it was because these were the instruments that were available and those were the people that were available. And this sense of kind of overwhelming adaptability, we must create, we must adapt, even under the worst possible circumstances. And you, and there is so much amazing music that was created, even under those circumstances, with the most unusual instrumentations, under the most trying of circumstances. And this music, you know, keeps inspiring and keeps memory and story alive. And I think just in a way, when you're looking at the, you know, the pit of the orchestra and seeing there's no, there's no violas there. There's, there's there's none of this instrument. There's none of that instrument. Almost who is not there is almost as poignant as who is there. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I relate this a little bit to, I guess, my own personal experience watching a movie like The Sound of Music. And as a child, I think that was my first introduction to the Holocaust. And for some of our young audience members at the Young People's Concert and uh, even the Evening Concert, this could be their first introduction to the story of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is, of course, a very weighty subject, but um, on, on the surface, it is that it is uh, the uh, kind of a benign story of, you know, these two children going to the marketplace to um, get milk for their dying mother, and they encounter this, this villain, and they... Um, have help from their their animal friends and other children to accomplish this. Um, so I I think that yes, bring your entire family because people of all ages can um, get something from they it. They need to see it. They need exactly. to see it. I think, and I think that one of the great things about but the giraffe mm -hmm. is 
maybe it's difficult for a, a child to fully empathize with the historical mm-hmm. situation, but they can empathize with the, the moving, but, but the, the idea of the fa- you know, like, and then bit by bit, it's mm-hmm. really masterfully crafted to lead into Brenda Barr to create this context where you're thinking about what what the idea of sacrifice means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then once you're there, then you, then even though it's just kind of alluded to in Brindabar, the sacrifice that the children are making for their mother, mm-hmm. they're already thinking about it and they'll experience it fully. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's it's a really well crafted introduction to the opera. Yes. Well, we've uh, talked a lot about family friendly programs on this uh, podcast and this series, but this is really, like you say, Merwin, a, a compulsory family experience. <laughs> it, I mean, it's something that you know. Any parent, I th- I would think, would want to expose their children to. I think it builds family. Yeah. In a, it, I mean, there's things <laughs> when you're talking about family friendly. There's also something that can, you know, enhance and create different types of connections, and you know, have and those conversations that are the conversations that build characters and build people, and that re- they remember years from now. Yeah. Well, and it's the kind of experience and the kind of thing through art that Mm -hmm. art often serves as a conversation starter, a conversation opener, Mm -hmm. a way to continue the conversation about certain things. And certainly Brindabar and But the Giraffe serve the purpose, especially Brindabar with its history and and with its longevity having survived uh, the, the Holocaust, as it were, being a way to continue the conversation and try to make people aware in this day and age it's so easy to forget um, how horrible an experience that was for the Jews. And it also helps to explain, once you can sort of wrap your mind around it a little bit, it helps to explain why you can never even take the first step in that direction again. Right, and this is part of the work that you do, Hinda. I know that you're trying to keep not only raise awareness, but but keep keep it going among people, and not just Jews, but other people to understand the Jewish experience mm-hmm. and to see the dangers that are inherent all the time in human society. It's human nature, and mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your experiences working with. Um, the the resource center named for your mother-in-law um, trying to raise awareness and trying to get people to, to understand from the Jewish perspective what a, what a horrible event this is and, and how we can never even move in that direction again. Well, I think the more programming we, we have is important um, for the schools, for the teachers to know what's going on. Um, but also back to the opera itself, you know, at the end where they have this huge triumphant mm-hmm. um, song that it's their plea mm. for to not give in to hatred and mm-hmm. prejudice and bigotry. And I think that's a message that must go out that we need to be upstanders, not bystanders. And we see something wrong, we need to say it's wrong and not not just acquiesce. And I think that's an important thing nowadays um, with all children, with adults also. Um, we do become very complacent. And something like this maybe shakes you up a little bit. Yeah. And it could happen again. It's, it's, it, 
It's not something that will never happen again. It could very easily happen again. It doesn't take much. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's a heightened awareness of that, especially right, in this day and right. time. And I also think being that it is about children, families coming there with their children will identify with it. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. Um, that And hopefully their parents will talk about it afterwards to their children. Well, this is also a fantastic opportunity to hear from uh, Tamar Grishpan. I wonder if you can Good. talk about who she is and her mother okay. and the connection. Okay. Well, Tamar Grishpan is the daughter of Ella Weisberger, who um, was the cat in all 55 productions of Brundabar. Um, and she survived. Mm. Um, 90% of the children um, that went through Theresen did, you know, did not survive, which is astounding that only, I think they said 100, I, I read 150 children survived. Um, so that in itself is amazing. And unfortunately, Ella passed away about a year plus ago. And so... Um, now um, Tamar is uh, speaking for her mother. Yeah. Well, and I imagine Tamar knows very well the experiences of her mother and is Mm -hmm. able to relate them. Mm -hmm. As important as it is for somebody, you know, like myself to talk about this sort of thing, having had no experience or connection whatsoever to it, I, I think that it's really important to hear from people who experienced it either firsthand or secondhand. Because, as you have said, you know, many of those firsthand witnesses are, are no longer with us and, and are probably not going to be with us at all Correct. in the next few decades. Mm-hmm. But it, it's works of art like this that are able to stand the test of time and that are able to be performed and presented. I mean, if you look on Wikipedia, you can see many, many performances that have been done, not just by professional organizations, but by a lot of kids and and groups that are associated with schools and with kids as well. And, And it's such an important way to raise awareness and sort of allow people a little bit of a glimpse into not only the minds of the people who created it, but those who went through this this horrifying experience. And the fact that it ends, you know, it has a happy ending, right, it is bittersweet mm-hmm. in a way, knowing what happened to those kids and what happened to the composer afterwards being sent mm-hmm. off to Auschwitz mm-hmm. and not surviving, um, not surviving the Holocaust. And it, it just, you know, it boggles the mind to, to try to, put that in context with our daily lives today. This is one of those pieces of art that really, you know, really can hit home, I think, when you know the story surrounding it. I just have to add that I I just have to thank you, Hinda, because I remember when you, um, and I did not know um, a lot about this production um, prior to meeting you and talking with you about the history and what uh, people will see on stage. And the passion that you have for um, your mission to share this message in the community is remarkable. And I just, yeah. I just have to thank you. Well, thank you. I thank you and Merwin and the Toledo Symphony and the Toledo School of the Arts for doing this and, um, the, and know the importance. Um, six million Jews died, 1.5 million children. And this production is for the 1.5 million children that died in the Holocaust who can never speak. 
The concert is happening, or the performance, I should say, is happening on February 20th. That's a Thursday evening. It's at the Paris Style at the Toledo Museum of Art. Uh, Hinda Markowitz, who is director of the Ruth Fagerman Markowitz Holocaust Resource Center at Greater Toledo, thank you for joining us today and sharing this with us and talking about it. Um, I feel eminently unqualified myself to talk about it, so I'm gl- so glad that you were here. Thank you for having me. To help us out with that. And uh, also David Sagers, who is uh, Artistic Director at Toledo School for the Arts. Thank you for joining us today, David. It's a pleasure. I also want to thank, of course, our regular panelists, Merwin Sue and Felicia Canny. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barber Kern Foundation. You can download episodes of our program as a podcast by going to our website, that's wgte.org slash lab, or you can subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple and Google Podcasts. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.